This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org/ccnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Um, first, it's nice to be here. Uh, a week ago, uh, as these things go, that's actually not a week, but I'm too confused about the days. Um, I was in New Zealand um, uh, reconnecting with an old friend of mine who, when I trained in Rochester with Kepler, where she uh she was just entering practice. I was leaving to, to come to Zen Mountain Monastery. She's now a teacher in New Zealand in Auckland. And um, the four of us, her uh, husband and my wife, uh, put on a, um, a seminar to a fairly packed house on the relationship between relationship and practice. Uh, it was well attended, as I noted. And... Uh, um, Quite interesting. <laughs> um, I was away for a good period of time a month, traveling through New Zealand, making seven or eight teaching stops, and uh, also touring. It's it's the fifth time I've been there, and Hojin Sensei and I alternate each year going. Um, and pretty much the whole time I'm thinking about the temple. Uh, some of you may be aware that... Um, Recently, within the past week or two, uh, we've paid off the mortgage here, which is a big deal. Um, and perhaps over the next couple of years, we can attend to some of the fairly fundamental changes we'd like to make to the building. Um, paying off the mortgage is not enough to allow that, but it begins. Um, also, I, I miss you, and I miss being here. Um, so, uh, I just feel I should say that. <laughs> um, uh, these are the last, um, talks before Ango, which is coming, which I hope that the students, but everyone is welcome to participate in and will consider participating in. It's a ramping up of the practice and, uh, investigation of a specific teaching. Uh, and the teaching will be the mountains and rivers, uh, will be mountains and rivers, which is both a sutra, in the name of the, um, uh, who we are, our, our identity, if you will. Um, and the, the sutra by Dogen is um, a remarkable sutra, a teaching. Uh, and... Um, Given the state of the environment, uh, I think it's appropriate uh, to, to look at that. And also part of the 40th anniversary of the Mountains and Rivers Order, which is coming up later in the year. So, the talk today is going to be on a koan, case number 14 in the Mumankan. Uh, it's entitled, Yuman's Appropriate Statement. It's a very simple koan. A monk asked Yuman, what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And Yuman said, an appropriate statement. 
So Yuman was a great master. A lot is known about him, and he appears in a lot of koan cases, especially in the Blue Cliff record, which this is from. Um, so what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And Yuman's response is an appropriate statement. So is Yuman answering the, the monastic's question, or is he commenting on it? Uh, that's an obvious question and an obvious answer because masters always answer the question. Um, whether or not it's seen into is another question. Um, but when a question is asked, always it's answered. Now, human could have said that the teachings of a lifetime are the teachings that Shakyamuni gave during his 49 years of teaching. That would be fine in its own way. <clears throat> but it's not an answer from a Zen perspective. It's not an answer that a Zen master um, would... You, it's not a way that a Zen master would usually answer because it doesn't invite you to realize the question for yourself. That's an explanation. Yumana is saying that the teachings that Shakyamuni gave during his 49 years of teaching are an appropriate statement. Or is he saying that the teachings are upaya? Upaya is, means skillful means, so that the teachings that the Buddha offered are skillful means of helping people. And certainly that is true. That's part of teaching is to be skillful and appropriate to the audience. Um, in the course of my travels in New Zealand, um, I spoke to groups that had very little uh, connection with Zen, maybe little or no meditation experience, but were interested. And also very sophisticated groups, such as in Auckland, where it was a combination of several sanghas that, that came, and everybody sat. Everybody had been to Sushin. Um, very sophisticated Zen audience. So is uh, Uman's answer um, just about appropriateness to who he's responding? So what is an appropriate statement? This is a koan. And in koan study, the student has to see what is being pointed at. And the basis of every koan, to some degree, as a fundamental aspect of the koan, is seeing into the absolute nature of reality. Absolute within the koan, and absolute within your life. Without seeing what is absolute, there's no point in Zen practice. No matter what specific practice we're involved in. It's, uh, Zen becomes a belief system or uh, an ap academic study or a declaration of identity. I'm a Buddhist. Um, but it is an insight. And Zen rests on insight into the absolute nature. 
to who you most fundamentally are, and I say this all the time, beyond the descriptions, beyond the gender, beyond the education, beyond the nationality, beyond any descriptive aspect of yourself, when it's all dropped, what remains? Who's the person sitting there? So, understanding that point, that every koan points at the absolute, at seeing, not understanding, directly seeing into the absolute nature of reality, we also have to see how that manifests. And it always manifests in the relative, in what we know, who we are. It has no other way to manifest. If it's absolute, everything is included, nothing's excluded. And so we chant, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, etc. Every time we have a service. But we also chant, as I've said many times, that is a part of the Prajnaparamita, that thus, having seen that, thus the Bodhisattva lives, Prajnaparamita lives in the relative world. So if form is emptiness and emptiness is form, if that's what we're practicing to realize, we have to see that emptiness is form, as well as form is emptiness. So not seeing these two perspectives of reality just as they are is the cause of our everlasting anxiety. It's why we have this subliminal sometimes much more than subliminal anxiousness to our life, dissatisfaction, disease, dis-ease with our life. All the time we mistake one for the other and stick there. We conceptualize emptiness. We think about what is emptiness. We know emptiness or say we don't know emptiness, which is the same thing. And also stick in the relative aspects of our life. We stake ourselves in the particular conditions that we deem important. And they are important, but they're relative. So one of the things I th- think, think about sometimes, because as a sangha we're exploring relative aspects of race and gender and sexuality um, and other aspects of relative and difference, of how important it is to explore that and yet understand that it is relative and also understand how important it is to explore that. Both those things are true. Otherwise, you get um, basically what we have politically in the United States. Um, I relate to it, and I've said this many times, um, because when I was at that age, I was involved in Vietnam protests. And I saw how, you know, we have met the enemy that is us. There was no difference between those protesting the war, emotionally and energetically, and with violence, and those opposed to it. There was some difference, but not much. And um, that made a big impression on me that this is a practice of the middle way, which does not mean the relative 
is not crucially important. It's important, it's crucial to address these issues, but with wisdom and compassion. There's no subtext here. There's no other message here. It's just with wisdom and compassion, which is what we're cultivating in this practice, as well as clearly stating in the relative world what's important to us collectively and individually and staking ourselves on that with wisdom and compassion. With the clarity that comes from wisdom and compassion, with the clarity that comes with clear seeing, we can come forth personally and directly to manifest where absolute and relative meet, which is the whole point of this practice. It doesn't do any good to awaken to the absolute nature of who you are and stop there. You're dead. Nothing happens in the absolute. That's what makes it absolute. So what gives it life is coming forth from that. But first it has to be realized. Not first. Simultaneously. We do all these things at once. And if that sounds overwhelming, forget that thought. It doesn't help you. It's just what we naturally do do in practice. We don't even have to know what we're doing in practice. I'm saying this, but it's not important. You know, and here I am giving a talk, but it's actually this talk is not important if we practice. Uh, You'll see it all by yourself. You don't need me. Uh, And at the same time, perhaps it helps. And perhaps it doesn't hurt too much, which I'm very sensitive to. Not just me. So where is that place that the absolute and relative meet? This is the question the koan is asking. And this is not a casual koan. The koan is, of, of course, simple. But it's easy to maintain, to mistake in its simplicity for superficiality. It is not superficial. This is a deep and real and living koan. So consider the question, what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? The teachings of a whole lifetime refers to Shakyamuni Buddha's teaching and therefore looked at from the point of view of the relative the monk is asking, what teachings did Shakyamuni Buddha present during these many years of teaching? So the question can be rephrased. How would you sum up the lifetime teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha? And that's part of koan study, is to understand what's being asked. Because it's, again, not on the surface, almost never on the surface. You have to dig beneath the surface. Just as if when we ask a serious question in Dyson, for example, often my response is in some way pointing at what's beneath that question. Because it's, it's not easy to ask a question and see for ourselves what's beneath it. Sometimes we can. But my experience is most of the time we can't. And so we have to discern 
what's the deepest perspective of where we're, what's going on for us, what's going on, of what matters to us. Because otherwise, if we answer the superficial, from a superficial perspective, nothing changes. It's just another question and answer. And we'll never run out of those questions and answers. They're endless. But when they're fundamental, then they can be inquired into and answered in a way that is not an answer in the usual sense. An answer that deeply addresses the question, meaning deeply addresses our own life. So how would you sum up the lifetime's teaching, the lifetime teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha is being asked. And Yuman responds, an appropriate statement. And again, I ask, is Yuman's answer relative or absolute? Be careful here. Is my question relative or absolute? If it's relative, Yuman could have simply given the answer to the question as a summing up of the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha. In, in a word, a single word that means appropriate, or upaya, or skillful means. He could have said that. If Yuman's response is absolute, then what does that mean? I already hinted what that means. We should sit with that carefully. What does that mean? Does it even have a meaning? If it doesn't have a meaning, how is he answering the question? Consider, in addition, that the Buddha is quoted as saying that in the many decades of teaching, he never taught a single thing. How does that fit in? Why is this? Why would he make such a statement? He spent his whole life teaching. And yet he said he never taught a single thing. Another quote is, he never said a single word. How is that possible? Where to, how does that make sense? If, if you assume it does make sense, that he wasn't just mumbling to himself some <laughs> absurd thing, then how do you understand that? That's, in a way, a koan as well. And a koan asks us to go beyond a usual sense of self and other and to see something from the whole alive perspective. It challenges us. And one of the reasons I love koan study, and every method of practice has its strengths and weaknesses because we're all deluded and we take whatever way that we practice and use it to often further our delusion. Uh, It's one of the reasons we have Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha to help us stay on track. Um, But one of the aspects that I love about Cohen's practice and study is that it forces you, it confronts you, demands from you, usually in the form of working with your teacher, to see it in a way that we would never see it just thinking about it on our own. It's not unusual for us to get emails, um, and sometimes people will personally come in and say, 
who do not do koan study and say, I've been thinking about this koan mu for a lot of years, and I have seen it, and it is, um, and they provide some answer. Um, and of course, that has nothing to do with mu. Um, we can't get there from here. That train doesn't stop at that stop. Something has to be given up. It's not a um, something we reach out to figure out and uh, understand and then present. It's not like that. Uh, the koan mu and other koans always have an aspect of the absolute. Well, what do you do with the absolute? I mean, it's absolute. So how do you express that? You can only express it when you are absolute. And then you're not expressing it. It's just expressed. And that's actually most of the time easy to see from a teacher's perspective. When Mu or some aspect of a koan walks in the door, it's completely obvious. There is a formal process to investigate that and how deep the student is with that because that helps in the teaching. But you should understand we're talking about something that's fundamentally not the usual business as usual. It's not ourself trying to be clever or smart or somehow outthink ourself and others in a way that, you know, we can impress ourselves and others. It has nothing to do with that. Because we're, we're investigating something that's extraordinarily rare and precious. Your fundamental being, who you are, in a non-relative sense, and then being asked through further study to live in the relative sense out of that. And the word for that truly is compassion. So Yuman said an appropriate statement. Yuman was not speaking to posterity. He had no idea that in this exchange, uh, which took place around 800 or so, many hundreds of years later, we'd be talking about this. He didn't know that this little piece of dialogue between him and a monastic would be investigated endlessly. And yet here we are. He was talking to the person before him. His response was appropriately designed to jar that person to a realization. And so that's why we sometimes say, uh, perhaps not often enough, that what happens in Daisan is between you and the teacher and should never, never be talked about. Never, ever, with one exception. And that's an important exception, that if you feel there's some abuse going on or in some way that that's totally inappropriate. But other than that, What's being said to you in that particular time and place is for you. It's not for anybody else. And if you violate that, you're creating harm. You're really creating harm.
So is he telling the student that his question is totally inappropriate? Sometimes we ask questions, as I mentioned before, that don't really help us awaken. Or that there's something else beneath the question that has to be kind of made clearer. Is it because Shakyamuni Buddha ultimately didn't teach anything? Is he saying there are no teachings? Is he saying the teachings are upaya? They're just skillful means, just ways of helping people. Well, if, if you want to be helped in the ordinary sense of helping, there's plenty of ways to get counseling, friends, to get advice. So something else is going on here. There's a different purpose going on here. And it's actually the only purpose that goes on at this temple. So, appropriateness, skillful means, are they both true? Are they both untrue? So, with all this dust in your eyes, how would you respond to this koan? How would you actually answer this koan? Address it. What is an appropriate statement in Daisan? I was about to say a pregnant silence, but maybe that's sexist. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have to think about whether that's appropriate or not. <laughs> How would you make an appropriate statement? What is your appropriate statement? Is there such a thing as an appropriate statement? These are interesting questions to me. From the most fundamental t- viewpoint, what are the teachings of your lifetime? Because you have teachings of your lifetime. It's your life. How would you present that? How would you say what your teachings of a lifetime are? Or point, or in some way make it visible? Do these so-called teachings of a lifetime shift and change and permeate and alter and develop and grow and ebb and flow? Or is it something that is clear and fixed and that's what it is? And finally, is there such a thing as teaching? What do the teachings of a lifetime point to? in terms of you yourself in this practice and your own awakening. Because that's all that's going on here. That's the relevance. A monastic asked Yuman, what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And Yuman said an appropriate statement. There's some footnotes to this that go with this koan. So what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And the note says, Even up till now, they're not finished with. The lecturer does not understand, meaning the monastic. He's in a cave of entangling complications. I've been for the past few minutes trying to drag you into that cave. Yuman said an appropriate statement. And the comments to that is, 
an iron hammerhead with no handle hole. So picture holding a hammer, uh, a big hammer, with no place for the handle and using it. A profuse outburst. And then he says, a rat gnawing on raw ginger. How's that for an image? (laughs) So this is a koan that's deceptively simple, yet remarkably generous. Master Human often taught in a very specific manner. He asked questions. He had a tendency to ask questions and answer them himself as his teaching. Or he took a traditional response to a question and substituted the answer in a more direct, non-explanatory response. His teachings were direct. Straight as an arrow, yet nothing is excluded. And he challenges us to to seek for ourselves with the understanding with which he presented his response. That's his challenge, to understand what he's actually saying. We are faced with a life that in some ways seems circumscribed by the boundaries of how we live, perhaps our job, our relationship, if we have children, our children, our family, and other aspects of our life. It can be a small, tight circle that we create for ourselves. But life continues. There may be interruptions, but most of the time we're able to keep on rolling. And yet also shit happens. There was recently an article I read, I think I read it on the plane, but I'm so time and place confused that I'm not sure where I read it, where a 40-year-old person uh, in the midst of a middle-class life suffered a stroke, a catastrophic stroke, and was unconscious and missed weeks of his life from his conscious experience. Maybe you read that article. He almost died, but he didn't. And because he's a writer, he wrote of of his experience in terms of, this shouldn't have happened to me, yet it did. It shouldn't have happened. I didn't deserve this. Yet it did happen, and I don't know what to do with that. And that was an amazing article to me. It shouldn't have happened to me. Until it happens to us, it doesn't happen to us. And when it does happen to us, it's ours. Life is like that. Inevitably, it will happen to us. And you can fill in what it is because it happens to everyone. But there's another side to this, of course, which is to appreciate your life, including it. You can look at your life from a lot of different perspectives. Now, he had several weeks or maybe months 
where he had no conscious experience. And his conclusion was this shouldn't have happened to him. Suppose he turned that. Suppose he said, what did I learn from this experience? What did this experience give me that I wouldn't have had otherwise? It's a whole different perspective. Very, very different perspective. I'm not saying he wanted that experience or that anyone should want that experience. And yet, there is the opportunity to literally awaken to that experience. Awaken here means to appreciate deeply the wholeness of that experience and what it brought to his life. It's possible to look at every experience like that. And I'm not talking about a having a Pollyanna, uh, again, I'm just thinking of uh, the gender use of these terms, uh, but in a way I'm kind of mind-fucking myself, so forgive me. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, I have to pay attention to this. Um, uh, I'm not talking about some false... <laughs> way of understanding this from a a joyful perspective. It's not joyful, but it is teaching us something, as life is always teaching us something. And so that's an important perspective to turn to. And at the time that these things happen, if we're conscious and awake, a divorce or a breakup of a relationship or a fill-in-the-blanks and illness or some realization about ourself that is fundamentally challenging, or some way of appreciating the harm we've caused in life, or the harm that's been caused to us in life that we never appreciated before. And yet, every aspect also gives us something. It isn't possible, it is not possible to take without giving. And that includes every single aspect of our life. So to appreciate our life, to look for the possibility of appreciation. I, uh, uh, this is a paid commercial. We're going to have a retreat in a few weeks with Greg Creech on loving gratitude. And I have a, uh, a, a stake in it, meaning it's a, practice is called Nikon, which I've been doing for 40 years, so, um, and which is not specific. It's a Buddhist practice, but a Zen practice. But there's a retreat on a couple of Saturdays from now, maybe three Saturdays from now, I'm not sure. And I would point you towards that if you're interested in what I'm talking about, of how to go about appreciating what we normally cannot, do not know how to appreciate about our life. So that appreciation in all the subtle and amazing ways that we are alive, how well our fingers move, a voice expresses, our hearing hears, our heart beats, our emotions that we feel. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing that in the midst of grief, in the midst of challenge, in the midst of the endless things that life brings, you are alive. 
with whatever you have, you can fully live. This too is the teachings of a lifetime. The commentary to this koan by Master Yun Wan. Members of the Chan family, Chan is Chinese word for Zen. If you want to know the meaning of Buddha nature, you must observe times and seasons, causes and conditions. This is called the special transmission outside the teachings, the written teachings. The sole transmission of the mind seal directly pointing to the human mind for the perception of nature and the realization of Buddhahood. What did Yun Wu just say? If you want to know the meanings of Buddha nature, you must observe times, seasons, causes, conditions. The relative. You must observe your life. You must study your life. Observe is a particular word. He's not talking about stepping back and casually looking at it. That we all do all the time. We kind of semi-witness from a distance of life. And that creates more suffering. He's talking about study. Study our life. Study the specifics of our mind, which obviously rests in Zazen, on and off the mat, in our awareness and our attention. Attention and intention. This is the awake mind. The practice of this is the awake mind. So, Master Yunmin in this, Yunwu in this commentary is saying it directly. If you want to know who you fundamentally are, attend to the circumstances before you. Attend, directly attend. Well, it seems impossible. I, again, I've said this before. I remember uh, years ago in practice when I heard stuff like this and asking me when I'm off the mat to pay attention. Start there. And thinking, that's impossible. <laughs> you know, my mind immediately goes where it goes, and I don't see any way around that. Well, if I don't see any way around that, there is no way around that. It's that simple. If I consider the possibility of attending and not measuring that, so not seeing any way around it is already looking at the outcome and expectation that I should have a certain awareness at a certain time. How's that working for you? It doesn't work in Zazen. It doesn't work off the mat. But we practice it. We try. We do our best without making it a thing. And that changes everything. That actually changes everything. No matter how little we're attending, if we're trying to attend, in and of itself, that changes everything. When you meet someone who looks you in the eye, or whatever culturally is equivalent to that, because it's not always eye contact, and is present with you, That changes you. So when you are present and meet someone, that changes them. 
There's life there. There's energy there. Now, I'm not talking about a cultivated way that is skillful in terms of, you know, salesmen do this, that, that has a, a purpose to get something for me. The purpose here is to be awake. It's just to see what is. And that's crucial. So I'm not talking about a skill here. I'm talking about waking up. In the commentary, it says, for 49 years, old Shakyamuni stayed in the world. At 360 assemblies, he expounded the sudden and the gradual. Don't miss that, sudden and gradual. That's practice. That's realization. It's sudden and it's gradual. The temporary and the true, the relative and absolute. These are what is called the teachings of a whole lifetime. The monastic, in this case, picked this out to ask, what are the teachings of a lifetime? Why didn't Yuman explain it to him in full detail? Why didn't he? Why did he instead instead say an appropriate statement? Yuman was famous in his responses to questions to present three different perspectives in each response that he gave. So stay with me here. It is important. His responses enclosed heaven and earth. His response follows the waves. And his response cuts off the myriad streams. So the sentence encloses heaven and earth, an appropriate statement. Nothing is left out of that appropriate statement. Nothing. It follows the waves. The question is answered. The question is asked. Answer it. Follows. It cuts off the myriad streams. An appropriate statement. There's nothing else. There's no way to get around it, to fumble it, to intellectualize it. You have to see it directly. It's complete. At once, he lets go and gathers up. It doesn't fall any place. It's whole. So why didn't Yuman explain it to the mastic? Because it's worthless. It's information. And so his assumption is that the monastic wants to wake up. So he can help the monastic in this way. He can put before him a response that invites the questioner to see something beyond his ordinary relative thinking and the the world that he creates with his mind. It's a challenge, and it's a challenge that's only met by someone who does want to wake up, and that's the foundation of their practice. It's not a challenge to someone who doesn't give a shit or is just casually asking an intellectual question. To those people, he probably would say, oh, it's the Buddha's teaching, and it 
Buddha taught this and that and that and this. Because that's appropriate. So the question is, in your own life, do you see what is near and what is far? What is close and intimate, as well as what is distant yet important? Do you see that for yourself? What is sad and painful? Part of our life. And what is distant yet important? And joyful and warm, and happy. Do you see these things? You know, our tendency is to fix on what causes us trouble and think, how often do we say to someone else, you always, well, perhaps we say this to ourselves, you always, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, and to me, that's a hallmark, because I ask myself, do I always do that? And the answer is no. Do they always do that? The answer is no. But look what I'm doing. I mean, this is pure delusion. This is justifying my sense of separate self in the name of being right and being accusatory. And of course, I'm protecting myself. And, you know, the most interesting thing about that is when I accuse someone else of you always That's what I do. I tend to do that thing. Yet it's unacceptable for me to admit that. So that's fascinating to me. How my funny, odd mind works. I don't think I'm alone in that. In Zen teaching, if one speaks too much, it's said you lose your eyebrows. Sorry. Yet, if you do not respond, how do you say it all without fearing to lose your eyebrows? Forgive me, Roshi, who makes fun of my eyebrows all the time. Right now, in this moment of your life, how do you manifest an appropriate statement. Right now, right here. How do you manifest that? If your mind moves, that's already a distance. So what is an appropriate statement right now? I'm not asking theoretically. And the word statement is not, does not mean or disregard words. It's any perspective. And does this question have anything to do with a proper answer to this koan? Responding in appropriateness is always in the relative world. Yet our true nature is empty of any relativity. Seeing this for ourself, practicing this for ourself, using zazen, and liturgy, and practicing um, morality as an actuality within our life, we begin to see what's appropriate for ourselves in any given moment. And the any given moment is crucial. 
That's all we have. Questioning this and other aspects of this relative world through our Zazen, through the Dharma teachings, endlessly inquiring, yet having a deep faith as our practice deepens, is the path. That's how this works. So how do you see this koan? As I've said, this is not a casual question. Where do you find yourself in the investigation of an appropriate statement, an appropriate response at any point in your life? A response which deeply respects the absolute and yet comes forth. Human is inviting us to see ourselves and all ourselves, because we all have many selves, with the true eye of our being, with the wholeness that is our birthright. I hope you're hearing his teachings. I hope you walk out of this room with this question and other questions on your mind, open questions. I'm not asking you to answer in the usual sense of answering. I'm asking you to question and keep the question open. What are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And what does this have to do with your life? Thanks for listening. Do you have physical challenges to visiting Zen Mountain Monastery or Fire Lotus Temple? The Diamond Net is a group of Mountains and Rivers Order students who are available to support your practice. We provide Dharma and other support to Sangha members facing life challenges such as illness or mobility issues. If you would like to visit the monastery or the Zen Center but need some physical help, someone from the Diamond Net can assist you. For information, email diamondnet at mro.org or visit our webpage at zmm.org and look under the Programs menu.